This podcast is presented by The Ed Narrative, a place for reflective discourse on education. Visit theednarrative.com to subscribe to this podcast or our blog. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. And please leave a review to help us grow this community of educators. Welcome to episode 17 of the Ed Narrative Podcast. My name is Darren Ralston. I'm the producer. This time around, we'll be talking with Diane Sweeney, whose work with student-centered coaching has been of particular interest to me, mainly because of the way it works with data and how it focuses on the results as it shows up with the kids. Um, You know, when it comes to coaching, sometimes it's hard to really see the impact that you have because you're sort of a middleman or or middle person when it comes to your work. You work with the teacher, but the teacher is the one who works with the students. And ultimately, anybody who's in education is there to try and help the students to perform better. So this is an interesting approach that I feel like uh, makes some inroads towards making those connections more direct between coach and student and teacher. So uh, if you follow this podcast, you you will know that uh, I had originally planned to have this episode released in September, but uh, unfortunately, uh, Diane had had an accident with uh, her mountain bike. She uh, was out and uh, managed to break her leg in two places, had to have surgery. Uh, so when when we start off, you'll hear us talking about our various uh, our various wounds. I also had recently had uh, carpal tunnel surgery. So anyway, um, that's uh, that's a little bit of background on this, and I think uh, that's probably all we need before we head on into the actual podcast. So here we go. Hey, how's it going? all right great propping up my leg and trying to rest a lot great how's it feeling is it feeling all right oh it still hurts a lot but yeah yeah how long did they give you for the uh, recovery they said two months two months okay yeah so i'm three three weeks in yeah well Uh, i guess you're almost halfway there (laughs) that's what i was thinking i was like at least i'm almost halfway there Yeah, so, well, yeah, I just went in on uh, Thursday and got oh, uh, no. carpal tunnel surgery, so oh, we're in good company. So you're you're like gimping along, trying to type with one hand. Yeah, more or less. I'm also oh. discovering all the things I can't do with my right hand, you know, because uh, it'll hurt when I do certain things I'm not expecting it to. Yeah, so, uh, uh, we're getting old. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like. Ah. So how's, um, so the podcast, tell me a little bit more about it, just because I okay. kind of ended up completely Right, things happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about Virginia or beyond or? Uh, the most recent, the most recent uh, post I, I I put out, I, I had a hit from Estonia, so. Wow. Um, and then another one from Finland just this week, so. Um, so it's kind of amazing to see how it all comes out. I wasn't expecting that when I started this a uh, little over a year ago. So, um, okay. so it's been nice to see that happening. Yeah, that's great. You know, all the little doodads that uh, they put on the website for you to monitor your growth and, and all of that, they can be a little addictive. Oh, I bet. I can only, it's like teenagers and their Instagram likes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, how about we uh, we go ahead and get started okay. and uh, jump good. right in? I wanted to, you know, at least 
kind of touch base on the conference. Um, that was uh, it was a good experience for me. I know that you know we we ran into the issue with uh, with the broken leg, um, but um, you know Rachel, Julie, and and Lori they they did a good job of uh, really bringing up some things that uh, that I hadn't considered. I hadn't had a chance to really go to a conference specifically devoted to coaching. So it was yeah. a good experience. Oh, great. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do, and I know this is, um, this is more for people who are coming in to listen than for me and especially for you is um, for us to maybe get a quick overview of what constitutes uh, student centered coaching and then just okay. kind of use that as a, as a jumping off point. Okay. Great. Well, um, let me think about how I want to start this. Um, what I've learned in my years being a coach and working with coaches and working with principals who support coaches is that it's really easy to lose focus on learning and it's really easy to lose an outcomes-based perspective um, because what happens is we find that Coaching often is defined as a professional development arm of school improvement. And so we start thinking a lot about what, what do we want to have teachers learning and doing? And that's kind of not really how we define student-centered coaching. And instead, what we think about in terms of what student-centered coaching really is, is it's, it's a method of coaching that has been deliberately designed to put learning at the center. And by learning, we mean student learning. So we're not thinking about trying to make teachers use certain practices and then assuming that learning will happen. We actually design coaching that's um, kind of, I would say we adopted or used the backward design principles um, that have been around for some time right. and thought of those as being really what could also be the driver for coaching. So is what that, do we want our that, kids to uh, know and do? Wiggins and Matigue, is that Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. yep. So what do we want our kids to know and do, whether they're in a high school econ class or a kindergarten reading class, what is it that we really want to accomplish with them? And then coaching fills in with, okay, what are we going to do to make that happen? And so that's really different than downloading information on teachers, then observing teachers with checklists and trying to get them to use certain practices. Rather, we're really about the learning side of things. So one of the main reasons why I wanted to make sure to get that overview is because I know for me coming from where I coach, it's, uh, it's more, if you look at that table that you have in, in, the, uh, in the moves, right? The, the book, The Moves that you put out. Um, we probably fall more into the teacher centered, but at the same time, we're having conversations around what you're doing and how we can take some of that and, and introduce it into our work with the idea of also finding a way to quantify and, and use data to, to make our effectiveness visible, right? And I noticed in, in your book that you also had mentioned visibility of, of learning and, and and coaching and things like that. And so as we look at a teacher-centered program in comparison to the students, <laughs> let me try saying that again, <laughs> student-centered program, um, can you find some analogs that would uh, be a way into overlapping that and maybe hybridizing um, 
those? Have you had a chance to do some thinking around that? You know, that comes up often. I think just to define student-centered and teacher-centered coaching in relationship to one another, teacher-centered coaching is it's how coaching really started back in the day when reading first was hiring coaches like crazy to go out into all mm -hmm. of our K-3 classrooms. Right. Um, they spent over $3 billion on that initiative. A lot of folks were buying materials, um, literacy materials, classroom libraries. That was the first national foray into coaching. What happened is coaching became very teacher-centered. It was about mm -hmm. doing guided reading or using these materials. That's really hard to measure unless you can only measure it through a, are the teachers doing it yes or no framework. Right. Well, so that's what schools did. So then they would say, okay, let's get, let's just use checklists and we're going to go through and we're going to say, okay, are the practices for guided reading being used? Okay, yes or no. And then if they are, then coaching is successful. Well, that just, I was really around experiencing all of this and that just didn't sit well with me. It was, was that mostly self-reporting? Is that? Is no, that... it was everything from um, having learning walks where okay. you'd have administrators going through classrooms. It would tie to evaluations. It would be the coach doing it, um, mm -hmm. you know, and then reporting to the principal. So what we did is we created a whole mess that we're still dealing with today. And the mess really had a lot to do with the perceptions. And so when you have teachers who have a coach come into the classroom to see if they're doing what they should be doing, you have an immediate barrier put in place. The partnership so, is going to be really hard to develop under those, those circumstances. So you said uh, perceptions. Uh -huh. When you said perceptions, whose perceptions are the you? Teachers, yeah, the, the teachers', teachers perceptions, perceptions of, okay. the co of coaching. I mean, they, mm -hmm. and so then you get a room full of coaches even to this day who say, oh, I, I can't get people to, to participate. Oh, um, they don't wanna be involved, they won't, they won't join. Well, it's, a lot of that comes down to the fact that coaching was really about making people do things, um, fixing teachers. Right. Um, and so, when we, so if we compare that to student-centered coaching, when we, we really tried to move away from that, so that this goes at the hybrid question. Mm -hmm. So we tried to, reorganize our entry points to be, what do we want our kids to know and do? And then what instructional practices do we need to get there? So an example would be, let's say the coach is working on reading with um, a second grade teacher. Right. What do you want your readers to do? Okay, I want them to use strat, um, reading comprehension strategies. I want them to question text. Okay, that's what we're gonna go after together. And I can help you make sure guided reading is a part of that which you're supposed to also be doing. Mm -hmm. So what, what we found is that if we enter in through the, what do you want your kids to know and do versus what the teacher should be doing, it changed the way that teachers received the coaching. It changed the way that coaching was perceived in a school. So I don't think you can really hybridize these. I think there are times when teacher-centered coaching makes a ton of sense. An mm -hmm. example would be a district that adopts a new math curriculum. And everybody just has to learn how to use it for a year's worth of time or something like that. Right. Yeah, then we could adopt, a, um, we could use teacher-centered coaching practices because it would be all about how to do the instruction of that program. Or another example would be a new teacher. Um, okay. Maybe a new teacher that's brand new to the profession. Maybe needs a little of that. 
But yeah, we, we actually do have a novice induction program that mm. each of the, uh, the new teachers freshly minted from ed school, um, we will be assigned to a couple of, uh, of novices so that they can have somebody in their corner every week and, and uh, help them through whatever hurdles. Yeah. Know, first year yeah. teachers hit, which are a lot. So. Yeah. And it could be just uh, a lot of that could even just be how to plan and how to uh, manage a classroom. And, you know, I'm sure you hit a lot of those things as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But you had also mentioned quant, you know, measurements and, yeah, and trying that... to figure out how to measure impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the thing that, I, and I read uh, chapter nine where you, where you get in on that. And one of the things I was wondering about is as you look at, you know, you, you had mentioned start to finish for whether it's a, a unit or mm-hmm. whatever the coaching cycles goals are, you know, being able to measure them pre and post and, and use that as data. Um, but what I was wondering is when you look at the coach's place in that, um, there was one brief part you had mentioned about how that connected to that teacher's performance the previous year without the coaching. Is, have you done any looking into that year over year comparison to see if there's any way to do a metric there that, that might uh, really kind of help quantify? Because, I mean, you know how numbers are, right? They're yeah. just like, they're king, which, which is frustrating as all get out, but <laughs> that's what people expect to see. Yeah, we continually like to collect data on coaching cycles. So, mm-hmm. which is what you're saying, you know, you're explaining the process so nicely here. So we want to say from, if a coaching cycle is going to be attached to a unit, then we want to see student growth across the unit. We want to see kids making it to mastery of whatever was expected. And then we want to see the teacher growth. So what we do quantitatively from that is we like to use the success criteria, Mm -hmm. uh, much like you read about from Gusky and Hattie and the other research, educational Mm -hmm. researchers. And we like to think, okay, if this is the success criteria, how many kids grew to that point? Of mm-hmm. proficiency and how many didn't and usually it's a you know we've collected a ton of this data across the years and we'll find that usually about 80 percent of the class gets to mastery of that success criteria and that's awesome but that means mm-hmm. there's usually a handful of kids who don't so year over year we like to first of all we have an ethic that with student-centered coaching if it's about learning then every coaching cycle needs to be measured we have mm-hmm. to measure these, the learning and the teaching and the instruction. And so by using a success criteria in this way, we can see, okay, so this fourth grade, let's say it's a team coaching cycle with fourth grade, Mm -hmm. their kids grew to the point we wanted them to grow. And year over year, we'd hope that every coaching cycle is achieving that kind of level of growth. And then we also like to see some observational data and some self-report data on the instructional practices. So how did the teacher master new instructional practices? How's the teacher better having been right. through the coaching cycle? So if you have, and, and I'm not sure, you know, the, the format that you work under for, for that type of data collection and with cycles, but if you were to be, say, in a high school where you have a department, uh, an English department, mm-hmm. let's say where there's 20 teachers and, you know, maybe you've got six or seven that are all teaching the same grade level and have the same expectations through their PLC, et cetera. Do you measure against the folks who didn't coach or is that something that's, I mean, I don't know if there's a 
you know, I'm not sure what the ethics of that would be. You know, and as I'm as I'm saying it, I'm kind of listening to myself, going, I don't know if I'd want to do that. But yeah, I think, and you're talking about control groups, and control yeah. you can talk to any educational researcher, and control groups are the hardest part of educational research. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just you can't control, you can't say one kid, one group of kids is going to get a bad teacher, one's going to get a good teacher, and then we're right. going to see how it goes. It's just like you said, yeah. it's not ethical. Yeah. You, can't, you can't get, you can't, for the sake of research, right. take away, you know, and so. Um, it's not the 60s we, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we did do a study um, in a school district in Seattle, or in the Seattle area, mm -hmm. that we did correlate coaching cycle data with state um assessment data okay. and this is so also like happening in illinois yeah so okay. looking at okay so does we wanted to know were the coaching cycles an indicator of better state scores on state tests um, okay. and we what they did is they gave the teachers all scores for participating in different pd and so mm -hmm. you get a lot of points for a coaching cycle some points for maybe a book study or something else are these uh, like recertification points or what no what they is, just created a, a they were just points for the sake of the research oh okay okay so I let's say it. you're like hyper involved you would have a lot of points because you did a lot of things and mm -hmm. then you might have the person who doesn't do anything doesn't doesn't oh, unless and okay. so they would have lower points so then you would you could discern who is more engaged and coaching cycles were was the highest point so it's kind of like a data marker yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I got you. And then what they did is they took that and they looked at that against the state tests. So they could okay. see the teachers who were more involved in PD and coaching received, um, and they found that they had, they presented at the state level because they found that there was a lot of correlation between huh. those who were engaging and the kids and performing better. Hmm. So, um, but that was a district led study that their evaluation department ran. Mm -hmm. What was the what was the depth of those cycles? I mean, I know you said people were involved at different levels, but were you talking? I think um, I think you had said six to eight in the book. Uh, were you talking about a cycle like that, or were they of varying lengths? Was there any type yeah, that's of a, that's a great question? So over the years, our coaching cycles have decreased in length. Uh, now okay. we're at about four to six weeks because most units of study are about four to six weeks long. Mm -hmm. And so we find that we want a coaching cycle to start when the unit starts and to end when the unit ends and to take care of the learners throughout the unit and to have the coach in there doing that with the teacher okay. so that there's that full blown. And, you know, now units have summative assessments, so you can look at that data at the mm -hmm. end together and so you have all kinds of information if you do it that way. So this, I don't remember what length they, this district did, but, it, but now just knowing our cycles are about four to six weeks. In high schools, sometimes they're only three weeks because yeah, that's all a teacher that. could get, all a coach yeah. can get a teacher to do. Yeah, I, I do secondary coaching and yeah. it, it's a mad shuffle sometimes because yeah. of just the way that the schedules fall out. And so. coaching and, and content move so fast that they may yeah, feel it like it's really dragging on if you try to go too yeah. long. Especially, I mean, for, for us in Virginia here, we've, we've got uh, for our English uh, SOLs, that's more of a cumulative thing where it's skill-based. Can you write? Can you read? Right. Um, but when you get into, say, history, then it's just facts galore and yeah. you know basic concepts and you just you got to go lockstep or else you're going to not cover everything and that's where that type of thing that you're talking about you, you might not have enough time that's where it becomes real 
So, and in secondary coaching cycles, we were careful, and this is tricky. It's a dance. Is we mm -hmm. want to make sure that the goal of the cycle isn't content driven. So it's not to learn how to do linear equation. Um, that's certainly like it. It may be about linear equations, mm -hmm. but we want to also have some kind of focus in a coaching cycle with secondary kids. We want them to be engaged. Like, how do we really, what's the process as a learner I have to do mm -hmm. to solve a linear equation so that, because if it becomes too content driven, then it's just, well, they didn't know this at the beginning and they know it now because yeah. I taught it and to it's them. it's a checklist. Yeah. We want them to become yeah. much more independent learners at, at the high school level. Um, so it looks like from, from what I hear, it sounds like you're saying that it's more based around the metacognition of mm -hmm. the skill or the concept attainment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and that hits on engagement. It hits on, right. uh, on, uh, you know, intellectual engagement. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's been fun to unpack because secondary coaching is not easy. I mean, it's a whole different <laughs> sort of world for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah it's a, it, you know, the, the knowledge base alone is so much more specific uh, I work in middle school and in high school, and I've been in a lot of different classrooms. You know, we're generalists. I, I'm yeah. assuming that from what I've read that that's more the case for you all as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not expecting to come in and teach them all of the intricacies of calculus, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I do look at pedagogy and practice and how we can implement it. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that content can really can really complicate things at times. Mm -hmm. And secondary coaching too, and as well as elementary, um, I think one of the most untapped areas is how do we work together when we're in the classroom? So a you big mean part as coach of and teacher? Yes, as coach yeah. and teacher and the partnership of the actual instructional process. Mm -hmm. And so part of the coaching cycle being about we're together in a classroom a few days mm -hmm. a week, maybe in one period, maybe in the reading block, whatever it is, and together we're, we're executing on this, we're, we're working side by side. So we like to see a situation where you can't even tell the difference between a coach and a teacher when you walk in the classroom. So that it's because they're both, Yeah, so they're both talking to kids. They're both looking for evidence of students showing up to the learning target that's being taught that day. They're both having conferences with kids or um, working with groups or whatever it is. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's pretty fun. I feel like that was a big yeah. focus of the move of the student centered coaching, the moves book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I've always enjoyed it when I can get back into the classroom and yeah. do, some, do some teaching. Um, on that point, uh, I, I remembered reading about the, uh, the teacher agreements for that mm -hmm. um, as far as planning ahead for how that's going to work so that you can get to that seamlessness what uh, what sort of conversations do you have in order to help kind of guide the partnership to that point so that there's that fluidity in the classroom? I learned this from Joellen Killian, who has been mm -hmm. working in the coaching world for a really long time. And I heard her recently say, anything new needs a partnership agreement. And I agree completely that we need to be able to say, okay, we're going to, us working together to, during instructional time is new. So let's figure out what that would involve. So how are we going to handle discipline? How are we going to, you know, which, which co-teaching moves do we want to use? We have five kind of nifty little co-teaching moves, mm -hmm. noticing and naming. Are we going to collect student evidence? Right. Um, what are we going to pay attention to? What do we really want to hear kids saying? 
Um, how often are we going to be together? When are we going to plan? And you don't have to make this into some sort of a, um, an intimidating conversation, but I think having some great clarity on what's it going to look like when we're working together just mm-hmm. is a good, it's just like setting norms for anything, really. Right. Sort of a framework rather than a script. Is that Yeah. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. And we included in the book questions you could ask mm-hmm. um, to, for the partnership agreement. Also, we think it's really important to do this with principals. Um, how, how so? Because for me, I actually, there's a, with my model, it, there's a firewall between us and the principal. So there's, interesting. there's, yeah, it is interesting. And when I was at the conference uh, with, with all the other coaches who had come, um, that was pretty foreign to them. So can you explain a little bit about how yeah. that same process with that agreement works for, say, mm-hmm. a, an administrator? Yep. So my recent book, um, Leading Student-Centered Coaching, really is about building principal and coach partnerships. Mm -hmm. So it's the antithesis of what you're talking about. But It's it's my world turned inside out. (laughs) (laughs) But what what we found over years of working with coaches is that the X factor is the partnership with the principal. If coaches and principals are on the same page, there's amazing work that can happen. And if you Mm -hmm. don't have it, you're, you're, you're dead in the water. And you can only have such so big of an influence as a coach when you don't have the support from your principal. Yet principals aren't supported in this. They don't know how to help a coach do their work. A lot of times they have huge misconceptions about coaching. The coach is learning how to be a student-centered coach. The principal thinks it's teacher-centered coaching and everything falls apart. So what we like to do in terms of agreements for principals and coaches is, and there's a lot in the new book on this, but we like to go to the, the trustee Venn diagram. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what's the coach's role, principal's role, what's in between, um, what's, our, what's our why for coaching? We'll use Simon Sinek's work. What do you, why do we even have a coach in this school? Mm-hmm. Um, what do we commit to for teachers? How are we gonna make sure evaluation doesn't land on the coach's plate? All of those things have to be hammered out or else a coach and a principal end up either working at cross purposes or they may end up living in their own. Like a parallel yeah, existence. Yeah, parallel existence. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I encountered when I was at the uh, conference, I was, um, I was making an effort to make sure I talked with as many people from elsewhere, right? Because we, we had a pretty good contingent from my district, but I wanted to get a feel for, you know, what, what my uh, colleagues elsewhere were doing. And, you know, I ran into a lot of part-time coaches and, and mm. folks who were like, I'm a coach, but I don't know what that exactly means, except I'm supposed to work with a teacher, mm-hmm. right? I guess that could be maybe some of that parallelism, but it also seems to me like uh, almost being just untethered, you know, to, to the school mission. Well, and we find that that is usually an indicator that there's no model for coaching. Right. And that was something that came up in those conversations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So they'll hire a coach and not have any plan. And then the coaches are usually your really type A trusting people who just Mm -hmm. suffer. And then half the time they'll just go back to the classroom because they feel like this is way too undefined. What the Mm -hmm. heck am I supposed to be doing? Yeah. And so we, we like to think like, okay, you defining your coaching model means you've got to figure out why do you have coaches? Um, what's, what's the day-to-day work going to look like for a coach? 
Um, how is the principal going to support the coach? There's so many pieces to figure out. Mm -hmm. And I swear we, almost every single person who calls us for help with their coaches has the situation of coaches, but no model. It is pervasive. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that you mentioned just now is coaches who just have these very um, compartmentalized roles. So you may be a secondary teacher and you have one period a week to coach or something like that. And that mm-hmm. just shows, I think a, it shows a lack of understanding of the complexity of coaching. Yeah. I can't understand. even imagine how I would go about it knowing what, oh, yeah. knowing what my workload had been. I used to teach English and I taught English that was dual enrollment. So it was college level composition where I was constantly under a pile of papers. I couldn't imagine trying to do coaching in addition to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Yet least there effectively. Are many, there are many people, places that ask that of their, of their staff. Mm-hmm. And then nice people who agree to do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and it's then, something new. Try it out. And then right? meanwhile, <laughs> they're saying, oh, and we need you to show your impact. Well, how can I show my yeah. impact when I, it's like taking um, a, a quarter of an aspirin and expecting it to work as well as a full aspirin does. Mm. It's just not going to. It's, right. it's going to be so diminished. No, that's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> analogy. That's a great analogy. <laughs> um, so I am interested also, I mentioned the, the visible learning stuff. Um, and, and you use that language at least a handful of times. I'm mm-hmm. sure more than that in, in the book. I was wondering what your connection is to the concept of visible learning with, mm-hmm. with your work. Because it seems, I mean, it seems like it goes hand in hand with yeah. a student-centered program, but, you know, if you could maybe elaborate a little. Yeah, yeah, and the work of visible learning and John Hattie specifically was happening, and I didn't really know about it. And meanwhile, I was over here trying to figure out how to make coaching outcomes-based. And so right. once um, my publishing company, once Corwin took over responsibility of bringing visible learning to the United mm-hmm. States, I started having opportunities to learn more about it. And it was just, it was such an obvious meeting of the minds, I would say, mm-hmm. because with visible learning, it's all about teacher clarity and knowing your impact yeah. and using, you know, the way assessment looks. You look at the top rankings and for those listeners who don't know, they've ranked pretty much everything that we try to do in schools to improve achievement mm-hmm. based on a meta-analysis. And when you look at something like collective efficacy is a, has such a high ranking, meaning it really makes a huge impact for kids. Mm-hmm. And that being that it's about believing that kids can, first of all, and then organizing ourselves so they will. Well, that's student-centered coaching, um, yeah, really yeah. in depth by definition. So I just think it was that the visible learning work just connects, in my head it connects, and I think the models are kind of, I think we're all thinking in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't go out and design it that way. It just literally sort of happened that way. Right. Yeah. Well, I know it, it came to mind a lot during the feedback chapter that I was reading. I was oh, thinking, yeah. this sounds a lot like, uh, like mm-hmm. some of the uh, visible learning mm-hmm. stuff that I've been looking at. I actually, um, a couple episodes ago, I talked with John Almerode when his uh, oh, science yes. book came out. Um, so, you know, he had also done a, a workshop on, I think it was clarity, teacher clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got into all kinds of uh, the uh, meta analyses and the, and the, uh, the strong effect sizes that, uh, that were there. But feedback, um, the, the stuff I was reading in your book, I was thinking, 
yeah, that sounds like it fits. Yeah, mm -hmm. that works. <laughs> so. Yeah, we do. We do an annual institute um, with Corwin on student-centered coaching, and we have all kinds mm -hmm. of visible learning people who participate because it's oh, just, cool. again, they're like if you hear about assessment-capable learners, and then we're talking about building a formative assessment into coaching. Mm -hmm. Well, then it's just at some level, it's just about doing doing what's good for kids. It's just right. Well, I mean, I'm ultimately, it should be right. And other, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know, um, you know, that one of the things that in in my in my coaching model that we've been, uh, and this is why we've we've kind of start this year we started delving into uh you know the moves as one of the books that we're we're trying to figure out how we can incorporate you know your work into what we do but um we've really wanted to try and put the student right there as the as the the target right the the one that we want to make sure is getting the benefit of mm -hmm. of the work um but then again it's 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 difficult sometimes because we have an opt-in model uh, we we aren't directive, um, you know. It's it's a strengths based model where, you know, we take and meet the teacher where they are, and then we try and help them to elevate their work the way they are looking to elevate it. Mm -hmm. So, trying that's, to find this the way in is yeah. is yeah, it's a great thing. I, I, yeah. I love it, but you know, we are trying to also figure out okay, how can we make it more visible for uh, the student end of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In high schools, when you have a large comprehensive school, you gotta you gotta figure out where to put your effort too, because mm -hmm. you can't imagine coaching every teacher if you have a hundred teachers in a school or right. yeah. So then it's then I could mm -hmm. see how an opt-in model may be where you go. Um, we try to encourage using the um, school improvement plan as a lever to figure out where coaching investment should be. We we get some of that too. Yeah, we, that's we, great. We have uh, with our teacher performance appraisal. Uh -huh. um, a lot of the teachers are looking for ways to, uh, to link into the SIPs because, you know, ultimately that's something that, um, that has, uh, has some solidity and tr solidity. What am I doing? Yeah. I'm emphasis. Talking, yeah. I'm talking, yeah. Emphasized. I'm talking so gobbledygook. It's yeah, late in the day for okay. me. The idea being that, um, you know, we do get into some of, some of those items. I do want to ask you also, uh, and I don't recall seeing it in uh, in the moves, but I know I think it was Rachel had brought up the idea of learning labs. Mm. Um, that was something that I hadn't. We we did some uh, work around lesson study, and it sounds kind of familiar to that, but it's mm -hmm. different. Um, what's the what's the uh, value? What's the approach that? Uh, what do you what do you go for when you when you set up a learning lab and and uh, and try to get that rolling? That's just a great structure for professional development that oftentimes would be facilitated by the coach, um, so that you have a very clear protocol. You have very tight norms, and mm -hmm. and the idea is if you're going to get a group of teachers in to observe in another classroom, you want to really make sure that it's framed right that. The expectations are clear. It's a little different than instructional rounds and other processes right. in the sense that it's a deep, deep dive into a classroom. So it'll be a half day where you have the morning is, um, you know, an hour or so of a pre-brief or, you know, and it doesn't always have to be a whole half day, but typically we work with half day subs 
So you'll mm -hmm. have some pre-brief in the morning where the hosting teacher and coach will share the work that's happening. They'll share what they wanna see the kids doing, what they're shooting for, what the success criteria is, what the lesson's gonna look like, and um, there'll be norm setting. Then the next, then the group will go into the classroom and observe the lesson. We like to have the participants collect student data when they're in the classroom. So everybody's holding a clipboard with a grid of the kids in the class, okay. watching with the learning targets in mind. So we're mm -hmm. saying, okay, so the let's say the teacher wanted to hear um, high levels of discourse in the classroom and wanted to hear academic language being used in a math class. Well, then we're going to listen for that. We're going to collect evidence while we're in there. Um, that helps get us off of this bad habit of just focusing on lessons and mm -hmm. not looking at the learning. So we right. push, push, push people. They also take notes on the lesson. And then the, the debrief is just three kind of rounds of discussion. One is, what'd you see kids doing? Another is, what'd you see the teacher doing? A third might be, what does that mean for what you'll be doing? Rachel may have done it a little differently than that, but in a nutshell, it's a pre-brief, an observation, and a debrief. And back to purpose, this is really um, not done, I mean, it's not done like continuously. It would be maybe two or three or four across the school year. Mm -hmm. um, not is everybody next, has to do them. That was just what I was gonna ask yep, you, yeah. Yep, yep, not everybody has to do them. I worked with a school in Iowa where they were trying to figure out how to teach number talks. So they did a lot of co mm -hmm. um, learning labs on how to do number talks. and. It was really, really helpful because it built this shared vision throughout the, the couple grade levels that this applied to. So they did, um, they did, it was, gosh, I think it was two or three grade levels. So it's just another kind of tool, I should say, in your toolbox for professional development. I find that informal saying to people, hey, informally get into each other's classrooms, it just never happens. Never I think does, we all need yeah. a little structure. Yeah. One of the yeah. things that it seemed like as I, as I was exposed to the, the ideas and what you're saying right now is that it seems like a good way to also get teachers to collaborate with each other without having to necessarily have an intermediary like a coach coming mm -hmm. in to say, hey, you're doing this thing. I know so-and-so is doing this thing. Do you guys want to connect? And then yeah. it's like, you know, there, you remove that and you might have some really natural connections occur from, from that. You know, people don't get to see each other work yeah. very often yeah. in schools, yeah. especially yeah. in like high schools. Yeah. We're just big advocates that I think you need a facilitator of some kind or else it gets so informal that there, there's not a lot that comes from it. Um, right. So entering into learning labs, we like to see like the teacher who's going to host that learning lab ideally will have been coached. Mm -hmm. maybe done a coaching cycle okay and then on the back end of learning labs you can see then how the teachers who haven't then may be more likely if you're especially if you're in an opt-in they'll they leave the learning lab saying oh i want to do x y and z and the coach is sitting in the room saying let's set up a coaching cycle on that hey i'm, I'm so your guy. yeah it's a marketing tool too mm -hmm. we also do coaching labs so we use huh, the same okay. exact process with teams of coaches where we say pre-brief, this is what the coach is working on, observation, a group of coaches going in to watch coaching happening, okay. pre-brief, talk about the coaching you saw and what does that mean for your work. So, so are those um, sessions that are 
one-to-one -one teacher coach or, or PLC coach, or is this like the, uh, the co-teaching, uh, like micro-modeling, all the stuff that you've our, discussed? Yeah, our coaching labs are usually, they'll usually involve a classroom, some, some work in a classroom while instruction's mm -hmm. happening, okay. and then the planning conversation that would come after that. So a lot of times it's a two-part observation. You get into the classroom, you see the coach and teacher working together, you see, and then maybe a lot of times we ask the coaches to collect student evidence mm -hmm. when they're in the classroom just to practice that. Mm -hmm. And then the, um, then, then they roll into a, okay, the coach, then it's like a fishbowl of a planning conversation that's okay. sort of natural. Right. Because then it's, oh, this is what just happened. Now let's figure out what are we going to do next and what's the next lesson. And then, um, then the teacher leaves and the coaches all sit around and usually it's a team of coaches district level to coaching team okay. so maybe eight or ten people um, mm -hmm. but we do a lot of these and we just really believe in very job embedded support whether it's for teachers or coaches because honestly you can sit in a room and talk about what it looks like all day long but when you actually see what it looks like it creates so much deeper reflection right mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I mean yeah, that, that's the same thing when you're working with a teacher. You can talk about what it should look like and all of that, but until it happens. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I always want to make sure that when I'm doing a podcast that if there, I mean, I've, I mean, I'm kind of pushing the questions and things like that, but mm -hmm. if there's something that, you know, that you have in mind that you want to add to the conversation uh, or a different direction you want to take it, um, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to go there. I guess, you know, when I think about supporting coaches, um, I think about what a hard job it is and how underestimated that is. Mm -hmm. And we, um, if we don't take care of coaches well, uh, and this is what kind of gets me out of bed every day, is the desire to take care of coaches well, right? Like, right. let's make sure they feel successful. Let's make sure they wake up knowing the impact they're making. Let's make sure they work under a coaching model and in schools that have cultures that are effective. And so just if you have people who are coaches who are listening and they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm just not doing a good job. I don't know if I'm doing this right. It's so complex um, that, I just, we, we can sit here and talk and make it sound like it's so easy. Do this, right. do that, um, use this strategy. But every school is so different and it's fascinating to see how it looks different in every place. Well, but the, the thing challenges that's been, are the same everywhere you go. Yeah, the, the thing that's been hard, not hard, I don't wanna say it's been hard, um, but the thing that's been interesting to me is I, I have been, like the way that we work our, our program is we rotate coaches. You do maybe two years at, at a group of schools, and then you do another two years at a different group of schools. So I've actually cycled through all the high schools in my district, and the culture between those four schools oh. alone is amazing. I hadn't, you know, I, I was teaching at one school for three years before I went into coaching. We hire internally, and so I figured I knew what my district was all about, you know, because I've been teaching and I knew these things but then I get to the other three schools over the course of time and and it's it's amazing the difference and I have to be a different coach in each of those buildings yeah 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 so. and yeah so it's so you're constantly adapting 
Yeah. But you, you also have kind of the weight of the world on your shoulders in a way, because you're like the one guy in the school who, who's there to provide support to teachers. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, and you're talking about supporting and, and, and all of that. What are some things you recommend, especially for people who may be on an island? You know, they're one of those coaches who they maybe have a full-time coaching position, but, yeah. you know, they don't have a model or they don't have, you know, or maybe they do have a model, but that once again, they're on their own in, in this building or, or maybe two buildings or whatever the case may be. I think that um, that's super common. Most coaches don't have a peer in their own school uh, mm -hmm. and that, so creating opportunities, you know, within your district coaching team is obviously the first go-to. Do you have PD every Friday with your coaching team? Um, creating the relationship and the partnership with your principal is, you know, another close second. But then there's the world out there and don't underestimate, there's so many, um, PLNs happening for coaches. There's mm -hmm. there's an EduCoach chat on Wednesday evenings. Hashtag EduCoach um, on Twitter. Yeah, on Twitter, it's fabulous. You know, it creates this sort of feeling of oh, I, I'm not alone. I have there's, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just was told this week or a few weeks ago about a um, Facebook page, student-centered coaching support, where it's. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's kind of a, you have to join the group and there are people who are just trying to figure it out and they're posting examples of goals. Is this a good goal? Tell me what you guys think and supporting one another. Um, there's a lot of others. There's tech coaching, um, Twitter chats. And mm -hmm. yeah. um, so I do think that you have to be, to be a good coach, you have to be pretty proactive. You can't sit and wait for stuff to come to you. Um, yeah. it won't, it just won't, it, it'll yeah. sit, you'll sit there by yourself wondering when's it going to show up. Yeah, so I think you've got to get out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that that's for a lot of the, uh, the newer coaches as they come into our model, they, they find that that's a little bit more difficult because you're leaving say teaching where everything's yeah. governed by bells and they're coming whether yeah. you want them to or not. And you, you've got this or that deadline and it's not going to just go away to coaching where if you're quiet, people tend to forget about you. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, you know, you've got, you know, like in, in your chapter where you, you relate to the field of dreams, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you build it, they will come. Well, you can't just operate off of faith because yeah, it's not it's not always going to end up uh, panning out the way that you might hope. So. And we we like to see coaches be we like rather than an opt in model. We like we 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 always frame it like we want an all in model where pretty much yeah. everyone in the school knows why coaching is there, mm -hmm. knows what it would do for me as a professional, how it would support my kids and my class, and then give the adult learners a ton of choice about how they can engage. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about it like that, and you think about being super passive as a coach, those two things just don't go together. No, you're no, going to create an all-in model. You've got to have a, a coach that can create some systems, mm -hmm. that can figure out how to make it happen, that can also respect people. And again, it's a hard job. That's why it I is. love it because it's yeah. so interesting. There's nothing easy about it, but I think it's super rewarding because it's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, you get problems that might look familiar, but they're not completely familiar. Yes, you'll have exactly. to, you, know, you might have some tools there, but then you got to grab a couple other things, maybe use a hammer as a grappling hook, you know, <laughs> whatever the case may be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. Um, 
I'm this so glad to do this. Um, and I'm glad to hear that you're, you're almost halfway there <laughs> on, the, uh, on the recovery. Well, and I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you in person. That was oh, that's really all, that's all right. This has been good. But, well, this is yeah. fun. I look forward yeah, to it. I appreciate it's it. It's kind of hard to hear yourself, but I'll listen, I promise. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it took me, the, the first couple go arounds with this, I was like, it's like, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're good at it. So. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> sure. Well, you take care. Okay. And, uh, have a good afternoon. Okay. You too. Bye bye. Right. Bye. Well, that was too short. I had a great time talking with Diane. She was really easy to talk to. I had a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to the day when we can do that again. She does have a few books if you want to learn more about uh, student-centered coaching. Uh, the one I was referring to the most was called The Moves, which is kind of a coach's view of how to do this. Uh, she has a new book, which is called Leading Student-Centered Coaching, which I would assume, I haven't read it yet, um, but I would assume is for people looking to implement this at either the school level or at the district level. So uh, check that out. I do want to thank Dan Sweeney, who I was communicating with over email for a couple months, trying to get everything off the ground for this. So thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate all your help. In other news, looking ahead, uh, we do have a couple of episodes uh, that I'm looking forward to. We've got John Almerode, who is going to talk about PLCs with me in the near future. Uh, I'm hoping to have that one out maybe November. And then, of course, uh, after that, I'll be talking with Carol Ann Tomlinson, who is the differentiation guru. She has uh, done amazing work in that field and is somebody that uh, really, <laughs> if you've looked at education or student performance in any way, shape, or form, her name's going to come up eventually. Uh, she's just that well known. So that's going to be a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to that. In other news, please follow us on Twitter. The handle is at The Ed Narrative. And then, of course, please visit the website, which is TheEdNarrative.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes of the podcast, as well as all of the blog posts I've put up uh, weekly, which uh, I put those out on Mondays at 8 a.m. So feel free to subscribe to the RSS feed on either the podcast or the blog or both. And I want to thank you for listening. Catch you later.